This Wellness Couch podcast proudly brought to you by the Nourish Me Organics Gut Health Gurus podcast hosted by food scientist Kribben Govinda. If you're fascinated by all things gut health, the microbiome, fermented foods, mental health, mitochondrial health and more, then search for the Nourish Me Organics Gut Health Gurus podcast on your favorite podcast app and get listening. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, Up for a Chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Cindy O'Mara. And we have an amazing guest on the show today, somebody who's brought to us by, of course, our incredible Cindy, the Dr. Ron Ehrlich. Oh, my goodness, this is going to be such a fascinating conversation. I can't wait. I'm looking at Ron's website and just, you know, having had a quick chat with the man prior to kicking off, this is a voice that is going to um, soothe every cell in your body as he speaks. Honestly, Ron, you have the most incredible voice. I feel like we should just exploit you a little bit. But ultimately, Ron comes to us with a wealth of knowledge when it comes to health and well-being. Dr. Ron Ehrlich is an author, he's a podcaster, he's a health and wellness advocate, and he's got a passion, and I'm reading here, and I just love this. He has a passion that converts confusion to clarity and information to knowledge helping to empower individuals to fulfill their potential, take control of their health, build resilience, and be the best they can be. And Dr. Ron's got some amazing material that he's going to share with us today, but one of the the things that I'm super keen to talk about is his five stresses, the five pillars, emotional, environment, nutritional, postural, and dental. So welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being a part of today's conversation. Thanks so much. Wow, what an intro. I'm, I'm really looking forward to meeting this guy. Listen to that voice. Did you hear that voice? <laughs> <gasps> wow, now you should hear me in the morning in the shower. That, that You wouldn't think that was as impressive as it is. I, I'll tell you. <laughs> anyway, thank you for that introduction. That was lovely. You are so welcome. We always do that, don't we? Hey, Ron, um, the, the first time I ever met you... Um, it was at the Wellness Summit and the very, very first one. Mm, and yeah, that was the first time I met you. And, I, all, you know, you're a dentist, but you were speaking on sleep, if mm. I remember right. You were doing a whole thing on sleep. So yeah. let's talk about how you got into dentistry, number one, and number mm. two, how did dentistry then get you into being president of ACNAM, the Australian College of Natural and environmental medicine. So how did you go from that to to that? And I know there's a big, long trail there, but yeah. I think it would be really interesting because no doubt you didn't go to an alternative dental school. No, I didn't. No, no. I didn't. That's, was, that's for sure. Look, uh, dentistry, interesting. I mean, science, I was going to do something science. And, sci- and dentistry seemed a very good blend of biology, technology, psychology, and that's proven to be the case. I've really enjoyed, I've been a dentist now for almost 40 years. I can't believe when I actually, I have been 40 years, not almost 40 years. Um, so I can't believe when I said that. But about a year or two after I graduated, I got very interested and involved in the connection between the jaw and chronic tension, headaches and neck aches and jaw pain. It was then called temporomandibular joint dysfunction, which is the jaw joint dysfunction. So I got involved in chronic pain, chronic musculoskeletal pain. And in about 1980, and I was attending courses all over America and the UK and Australia, and in about 1983, I attended a course that really changed my life. It was run by a chiropractor, actually, and the chiropractor had uh, a philosophy of health that said um, our health is affected by stress, yes, and but stress is a combination of emotional, environmental, postural, nutritional, and dental stress. And this was 1983, and I was 28 at the time. And I That's didn't, incredible, 1983. Yeah, and I didn't feel at that stage in my life like I wanted to or was 
qualified to explore emotional stress and environmental stress was a very new thing in 1983. That was not, uh, you know, you were, uh, it was kind of really out there. So I, I then embarked in 1983 on studying as much as I could about nutrition, posture and dental stress and uh, then filled in the gaps, of course, over the last uh, 30-something uh, years um, in those other, other stressors. So that's been the model of stress that I've used in my practice and in my own education and in my own life um, for that time. And it's a great model because I think it's a great way it's a great structure for asking all the right questions. Mm. And, and that, then, that, that then led me through my, I got a fellowship in nutritional and environmental medicine in 1996. And I've been a member of the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, ACNEM. Since then, I, I served on the board as vice president from about 2011 to 2015. And just in October last year, we joined the board and have uh, stepped into the role of president back then since February this year. So that's kind of been my journey. And, I mean, you guys would know this. The more you learn, the more you realise you don't know. <laughs> and um, that's what makes life in healthcare anyway so interesting. Mm. I'd love to know who the chiropractor was in 1983 that um, was at... Yeah, it was a guy called George, George Goodhart. Good, George uh, Goodhart. Mm. Yeah, and um, he, was, he was amazing and, uh, you know... Uh, uh, because dentistry, uh, that, that then lent me to work with a couple of really enlightened chiropractors and one in particular who felt that they couldn't stabilise uh, a person structurally unless they were working with a dentist to deal with the temporomandibular joint and a podiatrist to deal with the subtalar joint. So for five years, and then, and then I, so I started working on a lot of patients through this chiropractor with this podiatrist as well, and and it intrigued us so much that from 1990 to 1995, um, he and I, Mark Nino, he's in North Sydney, he and I did research at UNSW, University of New South Wales, in the physiology department on the role of the jaw joint and the foot on uh, the various muscles throughout the body. So, you know, so that guy was actually he's the chiropractor who gave me, if you like, that model of five stressors was a guy by the name of George Goodhart. Mm. Tell me something. I, I'm, I'm sitting here listening, mm. and obviously there is a lot more to say on the topic, but I'm so interested in how dentistry affects psychology. Oh, well, when I say it's an interesting mix of psychology, biology and technology, yeah. come and spend a day in my surgery and, well, you've been, in, you've been in a dental practice and a lot of people, this may surprise you, Karen or Cindy, I don't know whether it does, but not everybody comes to the dental practice skipping in going, oh, <laughs> I just love this, can't wait, the injection, the sound of the beard, music to my ears, no. No, you know what, the, can I just tell you, the last mm. time I went to the dentist, mm. I sat in the chair, he pulled the light down to have a look in my mouth, I pushed him away and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do this and I ran right. out of the clinic and I have not yeah. been back. Well, there you go. So we oh, are it's doing, so funny. We, we it's are so doing, funny, Cindy. Uh, we're dealing with psychology all the time. <laughs> now well, I get psychotic. it. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I get it. Sorry, I really, yeah. you know, I just did not. In, I didn't even. That didn't occur to me. You, you actually gave me the answer to the question. <laughs> you know, there it is. Now that I'm thinking about it, they got me yeah. to fill in a form, and they said, "Is there anything more you'd like to tell us about your dentist dental history?" And I said, oh. "Yes, I'm, I'm SH one T scared." <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's right. I mean, it's the most, it's a really stressful thing for a lot of people. So, you know, you've got to, as a dentist, create an atmosphere in your surgery which is a balance between not being flippant about that, about being empathetic, sympathetic to a patient's anxiety, um, and and you're dealing with you're working in a room now. I don't know whether you guys have uh, PAs yourself or a secretary who helps you out or whatever, but my assistant literally sits next to me for every minute I'm in the surgery. So that's a pretty intense relationship as well. And in between the two of us is, an, is a human being who we're working on trying to stay really calm and very reassured and isn't this easy and, oh, it's all going to be fine. And 
and and you know technically it's incredibly demanding you know you're working in the most sensitive part of the body the mouth while a person is breathing trying to swallow and you're trying to do finicky work that has a level of tolerance that is 10 microns now a hair is 20 microns so that's the level of accuracy dentists work towards so it's a pretty stressful job but you're dealing with people's anxiety so that's the psychology of it and uh, and you know it's a big part of the practice i've got anxiety just listening to that <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, what's, what, what is, what's, I mean, I don't know, what's the answer to that? Well, the Isn't answer to that is to be uh, treated by people. And listen, dentistry has come such a long way since I grew, I, I grew up. I mean, my dentist didn't even offer me local anaesthetic. So, so, you know, I mean, most dentists that I know um, are very focused on, on the patient experience, not just the technical challenges of restoring something in a person's mouth, but, but, but uh, the challenges of dealing with the person and making them as comfortable as possible. And that's a very important part of the, of, of, of the dental experience. So how do you deal with that? You, you, you go to and see a professional who's accepting the challenge mm. and deals with it in a very professional way, and there's an awful lot of dentists out there doing that. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. Can we talk about um, some of the new concepts that I'm hearing about in, in dental work. So uh, cavitations, root canals, all of these things that um, can be at the root cause <laughs> of, yeah, so Very to speak. topical. Very topical. Really. Yeah, of health issues. And, uh, you know, mm. I, I have, you know, I've spoken to you about my daughter and mm. what happened to her after four teeth were pulled, her four wisdom teeth. And, you know, it was a disaster in her health. But... Can we talk about that connection and what we're finding? And, you know, some dentists seem to be adverse to speaking about cavitations and do they really exist? But So, yeah, let's, let's chat about the, I guess, new age dentistry that we're now talking about. Well, yeah, look, the interesting thing about uh, there's a lot that goes on in the mouth and we, we, we're gonna, we will talk, I'm sure, about sleep and why a dentist is interested in sleep. But another aspect of dental stress if you like, and I include dental stress in my model for anybody with a mouth who is interested in their health but has never fully connected the two. And there are many connections, and the ones you're just talking about are some of those. The two most common infections known to man, woman, and child occur in the mouth. Gum disease in the form of either gingivitis or periodontitis or tooth decay um, affect at least, well, uh, the statistics tell us that for people over the age of 20, um, 90% of the population have had some experience of either of those two things. And, and the other thing that's really important to know, and this surprises me even to this day, is that 95% of oral health problems, infections, have absolutely no pain associated with them at all. So you might not even know you have it. So there's a very important takeaway message. Just because you're not in pain, and this is an important message for medical practitioners, health practitioners, as well as patients. Just because you are not in pain does not mean you are in good oral health. Now, if, uh, if you have those kind of infections commonly occurring, then if for, let's take tooth decay, for example. If tooth decay is left unattended, the decay will continue on into the nerve of the tooth and eventually the nerve of the tooth will become infected and die and then the infection will spread to the bone around the tooth. And all of that could happen without any pain at all, okay? Um, so so there, you, there raises the issue about root canal. What is a root canal? A root canal treatment is when the nerve in the tooth becomes infected or dies and becomes infected, and so a dentist will open up the top of the tooth, will locate the canals within the tooth, We'll measure them, we'll clean them out to that measured length, we'll open them up wide enough to be able to get antiseptic into the tooth, and then we'll seal the tooth off, and that is a root canal treatment. Now, you know, how do we diagnose? And when I say 95% don't have pain, how do we know that happens? Well, we take an x-ray, and what we can see is 
around the tip of the tooth where there should be healthy bone, there's not. There's a shadow. And that shadow means there ain't bone there. What is there? Well, pus or, or just granulation tissue that is bone breaking down. So you see a shadow at the tip of the root and you know that there is infection there. And that then gives you an alternative. You've got two, we've well, got three choices. One is to ignore it, don't do that. The other is to treat it um, with a root canal treatment. And the third way is to remove the tooth. Now, the controversy uh, is, and I, and I can share a brochure that we have in our practice because this is something that um, we deal with all the time. And in the brochure, we state the case for doing a root canal and the case against doing it. So here's the case for doing a root canal. If a root canal is well done, which means the main canals are, are, are found, the tooth is cleaned out, um, it is, an antiseptic is put in there, and, um, and then sealed off. And then six or no, 12 months later, you take an X-ray. And if the root canal has been successful, bone will regenerate. So where there was pus, where there was a shadow at the tip of the root, bone will be regenerated. And the ligament around the tooth will be intact. And that's what the case for doing root canal therapies is. The case against root canal therapies is doesn't matter how well you do a root canal treatment, because of the structure of the tooth, you cannot make a tooth completely sterile. And therefore, you have toxins from the bacteria continuously entering the body. And therefore, the best alternative to ensure you have no, none of that happening is to remove the tooth. Okay, so there's the case for and there's the case against. Now, you know, I have often said, I wish I was more dogmatic. I wish I was in the camp which said, all root canals need to come out because that would make my life so much easier. I would not have to engage in a lot of conversation with my patients. I would just have to say to them, you can't sterilise the tooth. It's going to be constantly a problem. You have to have it out. End of story. I'm not even arguing about it. And, and so they go, okay, I'll have it out. All right, well, what do you do? You have to replace it. And so you either have a bridge or an implant or a denture. And there's a lot of dentistry and a lot of cost involved in that. Um, on the other hand, we, we, our approach in our practice is to go through this conversation because the mouth is not sterile. The mouth, there's no parts to the mouth that are sterile. There are parts in, in the, around the gum that actually collect anaerobic bacteria, which is the, the problem within root canal treatments too. And so what do we do then? Do we remove all teeth where there is the potential for anaerobic bacteria? Well, we're going to be losing a lot of teeth out there and there's going to be an awful lot of dentistry done, which may be a pretty good thing in one sense. Um, it's certainly, you know, a very costly exercise. So our approach in our surgery and my approach for the last 40 years has been to acknowledge that there are these issues and to have a hierarchy of treatment from the least intervention to the most intervention and all the way along acknowledging the person has an immune system which changes through life and there may be all sorts of challenges that we need to consider in the process. So on some patients, for example, I will suggest that a, a tooth is better off, you know, it's had a root canal, the root canal has failed, um, you know, redoing the root canal is really complex, have the tooth out, you're just getting into heroics. On another, in the same patient, there may be a tooth that, that is more accessible, that is worth trying to save, and, and so I would do that. However, if the person has cancer or is immune compromised or, or this or that, then I'm going to be less likely to suggest that and say, you know, yes, the tooth is never completely sterile, but you're no, so is in other parts of the mouth, so it's all about a balance in your immune system. So it's really easy to be black and white. I wish I could have done that through my life. It would have made my life much easier. But it's a little more nuanced than that. Yeah. So root canal is a quite a complex issue. And as I say, it's much easier to say, um, ah, all root canals are crap, have them all out. Or it's much easier to say, ah, this whole root canal issue is, is bullshit, you know. If a root canal is well done, no problem at all. I don't believe that either. Mm. I don't believe that either. And actually one of the most biggest developments in the last five or more years has been the use of cone beam 3D x-rays 
that give us information that is kind of so scary as dentists. It's almost like you don't want to do it because what you find out is sometimes surprising. Things that you may have said to a patient, look, I've taken this 2D x-ray and it looks fine. And then you get off, you send off for a 3D x-ray, which we have read by a specialist. And back comes this report which says, actually, that tooth you thought was okay does have an infection around it which needs to be dealt with. So, so the root canal issue is a really complicated one. And, um, you know, I can certainly uh, share with you the brochure we give our patients and maybe that can go with the show notes and mm. people can get a bit more information there. It deals with what are the alternatives, what are the issues, etc. Cavitations is a whole other story as well. Can you hear about that? Yes, please, because, you know, that's for my daughter, there was no tooth left. <laughs> yeah. Um, the yeah. tooth was gone, so yeah. it wasn't a root canal. It mm. was mm. more, um, yeah, an infection. But before we move on to cavitations, I have to mm. tell you about a friend of mine who had some root canals, and she, he, the dentist said, oh, I think you should take it out. And um, he's a fairly alternative dentist up here on the Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm. And um, they, he got him taken out. He was sick as a dog. Yeah. Um, got rash all over his body, was down and out. He's a chiropractor, down and out for quite a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, but as because apparently a whole bunch of pus came out, <laughs> just yeah. it just sounded. I'm sorry, Karen. I know, I know. You okay, Karen? You're yeah, still with she us. She hasn't fainted yet. I thought Karen might run out of the room. Oh, but, I tell you, it's not. I'm, it, I'm not far off it. Yeah. <laughs> But I just found it, you know, fascinating, the rash. and mm. But now he's, done, he's gone overseas now and he's feeling better. Mm. So, um, I, you know, I've seen firsthand that, you know, what you think is okay and then you take it out and there's, there's all sorts of underlying mm. issues. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about the lovely cavitations. Look, cavitations is one of those issues. Now, for the listener, what cavitations means is that you've got a jawbone, right, and the jawbone has a certain density. Um, and, and you can actually take a 3D X-ray and you can get a measurement of the bone density. That's, you know, people have that done for osteoporosis all the time. But cavitation is where there is a loss of density. There is actually residual infection in the jawbone, which is very difficult to see on X-ray. This is one of the problems with cavitation, and that is it's quite challenging, in fact difficult, um, to diagnose. You can use an ultrasound. There's a, there was a new machine out that, that did that, and you know it was called the it's called the Cavitat, and I'm not sure about the science behind it, whether it has independently been tested or the results of telling us how great it is come from the manufacturer of the Cavitat. Um, X-rays is a sort of a way that people diagnose it, but there's limitations there. 3D X-rays may be better. Um, so, so it's a really grey area, number one. Number two, it usually occurs in most cases around the wisdom teeth area, not exclusively, but around the wisdom teeth area and more often in the lower wisdom teeth area. Now, when you go, the way to deal with the cavitation is to, you're going you're gonna to be okay with this, Karen, you better just be sitting down. <laughs> no, no, I'm breathing. You're okay, breathe, breathe slowly. It's, actually, it's very fascinating to me. I have to okay, be Okay, good. Good. Well, it doesn't hurt to talk about these things. No, there's a thing. There's no pain in that. That's right. Um, but anyway, <laughs> the way to deal with cavitations is to open up, uh, the, the, lift the gum and to curette out the bone. And the problem with doing that uh, is, number one, it's very challenging. It's a really difficult thing to do well. Number two, to do that, you have to be able to diagnose it. And if you can't diagnose it definitively, in this world, in this environment of regulations, um, you know, doctors and dentists and, you know, practitioners are coming under, and, so, and rightfully so, are coming under a lot of scrutiny. So if you put one foot out of line, you can be brought before the board and your entire professional career could be in jeopardy. So this is a serious issue uh, professionally. So in order to do something, you need to be clear about why you're doing it number one and number two you need to be bloody good at what you're doing because if you don't do many of them and you get in there and you treat it particularly in the area of the lower wisdom tooth where there's a nerve that supplies the whole lower jaw and it's very easy to damage that nerve and cause permanent um, numbness in the jaw which is not a good thing 
Um, and on top of it, the people that do the most of these things, and there are two that I could mention in, in America uh, who's, who I've followed for some time and I've done their courses, when they tell me that 50% of people in their experience have a relapse of this condition, I start to approach it very, very cautiously. You know, like I just kind of think, wow, number one, I'm doing surgery in tiger territory where there is nerves that can easily be damaged. Number two, it's a really awkward place to do surgery well. And number three, in the hands of so-called world experts, which they are, there is a high incidence of relapse. So, you know, I can understand why dentists... Now, now here's the other thing. One of the most important things I think for a health practitioner to be able to say to a patient is, I don't know. You know, like it's okay to say that to a patient. You know, I don't know. I think I will refer you to somebody who does know. Now, that's a very humbling experience, and I think that health practitioners should be saying that more often to their patients. But what a lot of health practitioners say is, ah, oh, that's bullshit. There's no such thing as that. No, that's going to be fine. There's no problem with that. There's no such thing as cavitations. That's crap. You know, and that is a very easy thing to say. I don't believe it's the right thing to say, but I can understand why a lot of health practitioners say it. Mm. So that's cavitations. Mm. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I just saw my, you know, my daughter after um, having four of them done, mm -hmm. um, I saw her health turn around in, in yeah. 24 hours. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, no, it can have a profound impact mm. on a person's health. And on the other hand, it might not. Um, it and it's, it's a very, very challenging surgery. Yeah. Which you need to be pretty definite about. It was really interesting because um, the dentist looked me straight in the eye and she said to me, I can't promise you anything, mm -hmm. as, as blunt as anything. And mm -hmm. um, then, you know, four months later she saw Casey after we had done a protocol. We had done um, Kirstie Worth's Cultured Wellness Protocol. We had done the cavitations. There were quite a few things that we had done. And um, she saw her in the December and then in the April, we came back to see her and she just looked at me and went, my goodness, that's a different girl, mm. completely different girl. Now, that, that's really interesting, Cindy, because what you've said there is exactly what that five-stressor model is all about, or at least dealing with one or two other stressors. Mm. You supported her nutritionally and, and, you know, that's really important because if you're looking for the one answer in health, I think that could be a long journey. But if you're looking at, reducing i think i think the challenge in health in general for all of us and we're all on this health journey together right so um is to minimize the things that can compromise your health and your immune system and and you know that's why the five stressor model on on one side of the balance is there so reduce identify and minimize the stresses that can compromise your health on the one hand and on the other hand build resilience by focusing on the five pillars of health, which is sleep, breathe, nourish, move, and think. So life is a balance. Mm. And, and if you can keep that balance, you're doing really well. So, Ron, I'm really fascinated by, um, you know, and you, this the holistic approach that you're taking is just so unique, Um I think I think it's amazing. I, I'm I'm really interested to hear what sort of cases present the most often for you. What do you see the most, and what is your most common advice to people that you see? Wow. Well, you know, I think everybody is different. Everybody's got their own story. Our first appointment with the patient goes for an hour, and I really just. Uh, spend quite a bit of time taking the history, talking, gaining, getting records together um, and, and piecing together the picture of the puzzle that is appropriate for the person that's sitting in my chair at that particular moment. Um, so, I mean, I think people, people's, you know, digestion is a big problem. You know, that's, that's a huge thing. I, I mean, poor sleep, cranky tired is, is another one. You know, that's a, that's a huge problem people who are, are feeling tired and stressed. 
And so um, that's that's what I'm seeing, and and that's why I want to explain to people, like for example, important questions that we ask routinely in our practice. You know, like when people have been with us for a while, they come in to see the hygienist, and they come in and you know, do a checkup, and they expect people, the hygienist, to ask them, "Have you been brushing and flossing?" And, yeah, I have been brushing and flossing. No, I haven't been, or whatever. But we ask three or four other really important questions, and these are. Is it easy for you to fall asleep at night? Yes or no? Do you wake up through the night? Um, and most importantly, do you wake up feeling refreshed? And also, do you wake up with a headache and you can't call jaw pain? But the big one is, do you wake up feeling refreshed? Because sleep, and this will get us back onto this, you know, you ask what has sleep got to do with dentistry? <laughs> sleep is, well, you know, the shape, I talked about the two most common infections and we talked about root canal and cavitations. But the, the mouth is the, uh, it, the shape and size of your mouth determines the shape and size of your upper airway. So if you have a narrow jaw, if you don't have enough room for all of the 32 teeth we have evolved over millions of years to have, um, you know, then um, you have, by definition, a narrow mouth. And people may have had their wisdom teeth out. People may still have their wisdom teeth there, but they're not coming through. People may have crowded lower front teeth or upper teeth. They may have had teeth out for orthodontic treatment reasons, all sorts of things. But if you don't have enough room for all 32 of your teeth, then you have a narrow mouth. And you don't have, and that, that does, that uh, provides the shape and size of your nasal passages and, and your sinuses. And it also provides the room for your tongue in your mouth. So if you don't have enough room for your tongue in your mouth, what do you do? Well, you walk around a little bit with your mouth open and you don't breathe through your nose. And that has all sorts of implications. So, so the shape and size of your mouth plays a critical role in the shape and size of your upper airway. And if you've got a narrow upper airway, that predisposes you to a whole lot of respiratory problems like asthma, allergies, but also sleeping problems, as, as sleep-disordered breathing problems, of which the most obvious is snoring, but the most significant is probably obstructive uh, sleep apnea. So, so, you know, this is the connection between what we see in the practice. And if the only tool I've got is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. You've heard that expression before. If mm -hmm. the only tool I've got is a dentist, you know, I'm a dentist, then I think everything is about dentistry. Everything has to be dentistry. You have to have all of your root canals out. You have to have all of your cavitations done. You have to have your mouth expanded so you have better airway. You have to have all your amount. You know, I could go on and on and on. Mm. That's not how I approach it. I say to my patients, your sleep, a consistently good night's sleep, is your built-in, non-negotiable life support system. If you get a consistently good night's sleep, then you will have the physical, mental, and emotional resilience to deal with a lot of the other stressors, which may be more expensive to deal with. So sleep's really important, and, and so we, we focus a lot on that in our practice, and that's a very big part of what I see in a patient. You know, I see a lot of patients who have autoimmune conditions, huge number. You know, you guys would see this in your practices too, but a huge number of um, autoimmune conditions, there's over 80 at the moment, you know, that's the body attacking itself. Um, you know, cancer, it's not just that we're getting older, um, you know, even allowing for age, since 1975 there has been a 25 to 30% increase in cancer rates. And I'd be surprised if anybody listening to this doesn't know somebody, if not themselves, one degree of separation who's had cancer. Who, who doesn't know somebody in the family or close friends or themselves who hasn't had cancer. What the hell is going on out there, you know? So cancer's another one. Heart disease, still the number one killer. Diabetes going through the roof. Mental health, huge issue. So we could, and, kid, and you know, is it that we're getting older? Well, our kids aren't doing too well either. I mean, one in three kids have allergies. One in four have asthma. One in ten have ADHD. Up till about a, a couple of years ago, I used to say one in 100 in Australia have autism. It's now at one in 68. In parts of America, that's one in 35. Um, cancer rates are going up. I did a podcast with uh, a, a, um, 
a psychologist uh, from the Sydney Anxiety Clinic, one in four kids under the age of 18, get this, have been diagnosed with anxiety or depression. Now, that's diagnosed. Um, so one in four, what the, you know, like what is going on out there? So when you ask me what do I see in my practice, oh, my God, I see a lot. And, and, I, and I think, you know, individualising the approach is important, um, but, but this is why the five stressor and the five pillar model are a really uh, neat way, I think, to approach healthcare. Yeah. Uh, can we talk about your role right now um, as president of the AP, um, I was going to say ACNAM. I was going to say APVMA because they're on my uh-huh. brain at the moment, uh-huh. but the ACNAM. Um, so, you know, you're talking about this, and as you said, you, you kind of alluded to this, is that you've got to be really careful in healthcare now. You can't say the wrong thing or you'll be deregistered or you'll have APRA on to you. So what is happening with ACNAM? ACNAM is, first of all, can you explain what ACNAM is and then can you explain what happened the, basically the week you entered as president? <laughs> okay, well, the Australasian... College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine has been going since 1982. It has literally trained thousands of medical practitioners, health practitioners, pharmacists um, uh, in nutritional and environmental medicine. And when you consider the World Health Organization says 70% of chronic diseases we face in our modern world are preventable and the result of nutritional, environmental and lifestyle issues it would seem like nutritional and environmental medicine may be a very good thing to focus on within medical or health practice. So the college has been going for a long time and, and it runs primary courses, it runs modules of various health, mental health, women's health, uh, autoimmune, you know, all the things you, you might expect. Um, and uh, it, it's based in Melbourne. We have an office where there are about uh, six full-time staff and uh, and, and it's, a, it's a great, I, I'm really proud to be um, associated with the organisation. I'm incredibly proud and humbled to be um, chairing the board because the board are just fabulous. So I'm on board with seven other uh, people. Uh, four of them are uh, integrated doctors and, uh, and others from the community, uh, various um, disciplines, and, and it's just a wonderful thing, a very humbling thing for me to be part of. Just after I joined the board, um, rejoined the board actually because I was on the board before, um, in, I took on this position in February, the Medical Board of Australia uh, called for public submissions um, on, compl- on, what was it, unconventional, complementary and emerging therapies. And, as, and it was suggesting that there were two options that they were floating. One was option one, which was to say, the current guidelines in medicine are sufficient to cover the treatment of conventional, unconventional, complementary and emerging therapies, and that it was option one. And option two was that um, more detailed guidelines are required to protect the public from complementary medicine. And, um, you know, that was quite an affront to integrative, holistic medical practitioners in particular uh, because, well, if the idea here is that you're protecting the public, that's a, that's a really important thing, you know. You, you need to protect the public. So it's really good to look at the relative risk of conventional, unconventional, complementary and emerging therapies, which is what the college did. And what we found was really interesting because what is a conventional medical practitioner? I mean, in my mind, it's probably somebody who runs a practice on a 15, on a 7 to 15 minute consultation, which usually results in the writing of a prescription or the referral to a specialist. Would you guys agree with that? Is that, mm. a, is that a conventional thing? I think it is. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And, 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 and a complementary medical practitioner would normally spend a half an hour to an hour um, taking a very detailed history, looking at, at these sort of things. So, so we as a college thought, okay, well, let's look at, we agree. We, we think it's really important to look at the relative risk of all of these things when we need to protect the public. So we looked at the relative risk of conventional 
medicine. And um, here's a really interesting statistic. It came from the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia 2019 report. There were 400,000 admissions to emergency departments in hospitals for pharmaceutical products taken mm. directed. 400,000 admissions. There were 250,000 admissions that resulted in, um, in then further hospital admission beyond just the emergency, and that cost $1.6 billion, $1.6 billion. Oh, my God. Then, oh, no, that's just pathetic. Then we looked at the TGA and we wanted to find out how many people between 1971 and 2019 died, <gasps> died from multivitamins or minerals. Oh, dear. The, the answer, zero. How many people died from fish oil? One, they choked. It's not funny, but that's what happened. Stop it. Stop okay. it. Sorry, sorry. Now, <laughs> let's, look at, let's look at conventional Whoa. medicine. Let's look at conventional medicine oh. and let's accept that pharmaceutical intervention is an important part of that mm -hmm. and let's pick a medication that you would consider in the spectrum of pharmaceutical products to be down the safe end. Let's say Panadol. You know, Panadol's not a particularly, you know, you don't need a prescription, you give it to your kids, uh, blah, 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 blah. 150 people between 1971 and 2019 have died from Panadol, right? So when we start looking at relative risk to protect the public, I feel it's a little bit disingenuous um, to, to just single out conventional or rather unconventional complementary and emerging therapies, I think we need to be looking at all treatments and, and start to ask some serious questions. So, look, I think it was an opportunity. The medical, it, it, look, it put a lot of medical practitioners, it gave them, you know, real cause for concern and I, and I can understand that. But we have approached this as an opportunity as a college, we've approached it as an opportunity. And the, the two opportunities are this. The collaboration which has gone on amongst all the groups that are in this space, of which ACNEM, the Australasian College of Nutrition and Environmental Medicine, is just one, has been phenomenal. Um, you know, it's always been little groups going off and doing different things and, and uh, you know, their own drum, beating their own drum and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. But the level of collaboration that has gone on since this issue emerged is really inspiring. Uh, that's number one. And number two, I think it's an opportunity with the medical board to look seriously at the relative risks of conventional, unconventional, complementary and emerging therapies. And let's have a serious look at this. Just because the pharmaceutical industry um, is the, the main protagonist doesn't mean they shouldn't be put under intense scrutiny in the same way that vitamins and minerals and, and supplements are as well. I believe they all should be. So that's what's gone on, and I think it's a wonderful opportunity. And the Australasian College, we're just going through this huge new strategic plan and direction, and I'm just so excited mm. to be part of it and to be in this position because our aim in the next one to five years is to make sure every medical practitioner or at least, and then on top of it, the health practitioners have a good understanding of nutritional and environmental medicine because that's, that's a big part of healthcare. Yeah, but it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's sadly neglected um, often. Yeah, well, it's not taught in medical schools. And, and in a way, I can understand it because, um, well, you know, I, I can forgive it because there is so much to learn in yeah. medical school. I mean, you know, like I'm a dentist and I, f I focus on the mouth and we spent five years uh, studying that one area and a doctor deals with the whole body. So, you know, they've got a lot to learn. But so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being critical of the undergraduate school, not emphasising it enough. Um, because there's so much to learn. Um, but, but I think if a medical practitioner is serious about, and it's a philosophical question, are you happy just to do a, a 7 to 15-minute consultation and is your role to work out what medication the patient sitting before you requires? If that is your role in life professionally, 
then fine. You, you know, there's a whole system there which is well supported. But if your if your role in life is to improve the health of the patient that's sitting in front of you and not just manage their chronic disease, then I think nutritional environmental medicine is a very important part of that. You talked about your daughter being supported by nutrition after she'd had cavitations done. Mm. Right? Now, if she'd just had the cavitations done without that nutritional support, I wonder whether she would have got as positive a response. And I think the cavitations were obviously an important part of that healing process because I'm sure she had nutritional support before then. Yeah, but, and but she did two that. months before we were still yeah. we were doing the program. Yeah, um, before we even started doing the cavitations, I wanted to make sure that she was, you know, immune wise at her strongest. So yeah, yeah. it it is. Yeah. It's all part of it. It's all part of it. So so ACNEM, the Australasian College of Nutrition and Environmental Medicine, is a bit of a mouthful, but it's a very you know for an organisation that's been around for over thirty five years, I'm finding myself at this point in my life. Um, in a very exciting place because we're we're going to be in a very exciting space as a college in the next one to five years. Mm, that's exciting. Mm. And this this whole thing that was going about um, mm. the integrative doctors and yeah. that you know, like I had the doctors call me because they they know where my sympathy lays, mm. Mm. and they were calling me and saying, "Oh, Cindy, can you put it out on you? You know." page on your facebook on your instagram can you let people know that we have to put these submissions in i had the chiropractors doing the same thing you know with them not being able to adjust under the age of 12 you know it's just this this to me has been and mark me if i'm wrong here but this has been brought on by the friends of science how do you feel about this group of people that seem to be wanting to get rid of everything that's integrated and everything that's medicine they want to keep. What is it about this group of people? Mm. Well, you know, the Friends of Science is such an interesting group and the problem I have with them is the word friends. You see, uh, the Friends of Science in medicine, you see, science in medicine is, I mean, we try, evidence-based medicine is what everyone aspires to. But if you look at the work coming out of Stanford University, the work of Professor John Ioannidis, and if you look at what comes out of the Harvard Public Health, you know, research that's published in a journal, um, just because it's published doesn't mean it's fact. It needs to be reproducible. And it turns out that 50% of research that is published in refereed journals um, is found to be invalid after 12 to 18 months. So science in medicine is very important. But what we don't need is friends of science in medicine. What we need are scrutineers of science in medicine. Mm. We need people who will scrutinise all of the science, not just what those that are coming out about vitamins and minerals, but those that are coming out about, about medications. For example, Harvard did a very interesting study looking at statins you know, this, the, the medication that lowers cholesterol. And it found, not surprisingly, that industry-funded studies were 20 times more positive about the health benefits of statins than independent studies. Now, as far as I know, friends of science didn't jump up and down about that piece of research. Mm. They let that one go to the keeper. You know, they thought, ah, oh, you know, look, yeah, mm. We're a friend of science. We're not a scrutineer of science. We're a friend of science. Mm -hmm. So I challenge the friend. I, I have the problem I have with that group is the word friends. Look, look, if you're looking for research dollars and you want to be on the good side of farmers, big pharma, then yes, you do need to be a friend of science. But if you truly are interested in the public health of, in, of individuals, then you need to be a scrutineer of science and medicine. And so I would like to see the Friends of Science in Medicine disbanded and a new group formed called the Scrutineers of Science and of All Science in Medicine. And then I would feel, I'd actually join that group. I would happily join that group. But, but the Friends of Science, no, nah, sorry, it doesn't do it for me. Ron, tell me your thoughts on this. Why are we so ignorant that, you know, everything that you're describing right now seems to be the most obvious, bleedingly obvious, that... Why, why is our community so blind 
that they wouldn't see that when they when they're scrutinizing um, the alternative health movement, why are they not applying the same to the medical movement, and why is all that information not being made available to the public so the public have free will and free choice? I get that there's money behind it, and I can see why it's not happening, but why are the public, and I've often had this question in my mind, why is the general public not up in arms and demanding that information to be made available? I mean, why are we so stupid? Is that a bad thing to say? Well, look, I think people like certainty. I think people like simple stories. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's like the chemicals that we're exposed to in our modern world. Yeah, most people would assume that if it's on the supermarket shelf, that it's been tested and approved by government and authorities. And if we're walking around with mobile phones and they're about to be 5G everywhere in the world, you know, the government's tested all this stuff. We don't need to worry about it. And, and actually, it's a very easy story to miss. But once you hear it, it's a very difficult story to ignore. But we overridingly, we love simple stories. And we live busy lives. De doctors lead incredibly busy lives. And doctors work incredibly hard. So I know lots of doctors that work in a conventional medical practice working on a seven to 15 minute consultation. And I know an awful lot of doctors working as integrated medical practitioners doing hour long consultations. And the one thing they all have in common is they want the best for their patients. Yeah. But they, they're, they're busy. We're all busy and we want certainty. We make all kinds of assumptions about it wouldn't happen if it wasn't true. It wouldn't happen if this wasn't, if it hadn't been tested. You know, the government must have tested this to be sure. My doctor wouldn't be using it if it wasn't completely evidence-based, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's an element there of, of that which is, which is uh, a problem, you know what I mean? I think when it comes to healthcare, um, you know, there, there, the problems that we are facing in our healthcare at the moment, and, and, and I, I don't want to use a healthcare system, it's more a chronic disease management system that has been kind of literally built by the chemical, food and pharmaceutical industry and it's managed by the pharmaceutical industry and it's a great economic model. Chronic disease management is a great economic model. But if you really want to get on top of your own health, you've got to take control of yourself. You said in the intro, and I, and I do feel passionate about this, to empower people to take control of their own health because when you learn about that, when you learn about some of the things that you may have assumed were true and aren't true, you could throw your hands up in the air and go, oh, what the hell, I'm just going to eat whatever I want and do whatever I want, mm. big deal. Or you could say, you know, my health's just too important to leave to anybody else. I really have to be informed. And actually, while our world becomes more complicated, I believe the solutions are actually remarkably simple. You don't have to look at complexity to solve the problem. Some patients are incredibly complicated and, and that's that they need good integrative medical practitioners to help them navigate that. But for a very big majority of people, the solutions are remarkably simple. So I think we just love certainty. We love simplicity, you know, and uh, we're busy. And a little bit of cognitive dissonance, I think, in, in that I just need to, like I'm thinking of the grocery store, I don't want to know that they've put in these things that I shouldn't be eating. And, and I really like that food, so I'll just grab it and I won't read the ingredients and I'll be fine. Mm. <laughs> so it's a little bit of that, I think, as well. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, right. wishful thinking. And, yeah. and, and, but once you know, you can't unknow. And once you know, right. you can't not act. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, knowledge is power. I know that's a cliche, but knowledge is power. And if you're going to um, empower yourself, you do need some basic knowledge and you just need to keep it simple and use your common sense. You, you know, Karen, you said it's such common sense. Yeah, it is such common sense. And it isn't common sense to expose ourselves to literally thousands of chemicals on a daily basis. It isn't common sense to walk around with electronic device stuck to our brain or in our pocket mix, in our lap. You know, that doesn't, that's not common sense. It's, 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 it's convenient, but it's not common sense. Mm. And I think that so many people, because, you know, as you mentioned earlier, 
the statistics of illness and disease and so on are, are just on the rise. You know, it's my wish for humanity that it kind of creates a greater awareness where we do start to take more responsibility for our health and well-being and stop leaving it in the hands of those that are, you know, um, profiting. Well, look, I mean, I think we are, if you've got a medical crisis, an emergency, there is no better place to be than in Western medicine. And I've been the beneficiary of that. I've had members of my family that have been beneficial, you know, benefited of that. I'm sure everybody that's listened, listening to this has benefited to that. There is no question. There are, our medical system on many levels is amazing. There are some incredible practitioners, innovative, smart, technology, unbelievable. The whole thing is incredible, incredible, incredible. So when it comes to crisis, our, system, our health system is literally second to none. But what constitutes a crisis? You know, is somebody with type 2 diabetes a crisis? Well, maybe not. Maybe there are simpler solutions than giving them metformin and waiting for their, um, you know, circulation to become so bad that they need amputations or lose sight and it becomes incredibly complex. You know, so, so when, there's a, when you have a crisis, yeah, I think it's fabulous. But, but, you know, there's a lot going on out there that isn't a crisis, that's being dealt with as though it were a crisis, and I don't think it should. Mm. Agreed wholeheartedly. Yeah. What an amazing show this has been. Seriously, this has been an incredible show. Are, are we really at the end of it, Cindy? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I look at the time, you know, we're, we're chatting along and I look at the time and I go, where did that hour just go? And I think it's the information and you get so involved in it and you, I, I've got a, a dozen more questions, you know, but I figured, well, we can always have Ron back um, when we can talk about other things. But yeah. this has been a, a wonderful start. And what I've got out of that is that the mouth has a lot to do with your health. And so it's really important to see your dentist and not run from the chair, Karen. What are you saying? What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I haven't been to the dentist. I, I can't even say. Mm. I, I, I wouldn't even, other than the time that I ran out, um, you know, anyway, let us move on. Yes. <laughs> Ron, this has been such an eye-opener and so inspiring, so incredibly informative. You're a wealth of knowledge. You know the part that I love the most is that you speak in terms that everybody can understand. So thank you for your ability to relate to the, the lay person and um, make uh, 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 such an important message, so simple. Yeah. Oh, that's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you guys. Yeah, thank you, Ron. So for our listeners, if they want to find out more about you, where do they go? Well, there's drronerlich.com and that's D-R-R-O-N, Ehrlich, E-H-R-L-I-C-H.com. So there's quite a lot of information there and, um, yeah, that's probably a pretty good place to start. And your book? My book, yes, my book is called A Life Less Stressed, The Five Pillars of Health and Wellness. And I have to tell people it's not autobiographical, it's aspirational for me now more than ever, but that's the name of the book. And it's available in bookstores, Kindle, or you could even listen to the Audible version. Oh, good. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, we'll make sure that those, that those details are in the show notes just to make sure that everybody who's out there running or vacuuming or doing groceries or whatever it is they're doing while they're listening, um, spelling Dr. Ron's um, name. If you forget how to spell it, just head on over to the show notes and it'll all be there for you. Thank you so much for being a part of today's show. It has been an honour and a treat to share you with our listeners, Dr. Ron. Thank you so very much. So for all of our listeners, head on over to allthews.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat. And also all the w's.thewellnesscouch.com up for a chat. Now, last week, listeners, if you were paying attention, you would have heard me mention that we have had two spots become available on our trip and our hike to Mont Blanc in 2020, September. Kim, Cindy and myself are taking a group of you gorgeous creatures to Europe to do a 160K hike around the base of Mont Blanc. And then, uh, and that'll be done over 13 days. And then we are also going to spoil YouTube bits with a five-star 
gastronomical food tour through Lake Como in Italy, led by our beautiful Cindy. Now, this is a hike you definitely don't want to miss. OMG, it's going to be absolutely fabulous. We have two spots that have become available from two of our amazing members that just have had their circumstances changed and they can't join us, which is sad for them, but an opportunity for you. So if you guys are flirting with coming, you need to send me an email at all at, I was about to say all the W's, no, you just send me an email to info at karensmith.com and it's C-A-R-R-E-N-S-M-I-T-H. Or you can just send me a message on our Facebook page. So head on over there and send a message through and I'll make sure that I send you all of the details on how you can join us on our hike to Mont Blanc next year in September 2020. So join us here next week on Up for a Chat where you get to become part of the ripple effect that's changing the world. We're going to see you on the ride, my friends. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.